you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 51 through 59, and I've entitled this sermon as, You Are What You Eat. You are what you eat. I think that'll become apparent here as we're in John chapter 6, starting in verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him, as the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Father, we come to you through the powerful privilege of prayer. We ask that you would work your perfect will in our hearts through this text of Scripture to awaken us to the depth of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ about how we must eat of his body and drink of his blood that we might be saved. God, illuminate our minds. Allow us to understand what Jesus means and to apply these truths to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the best that we can tell, the phrase, you are what you eat, was actually first coined back in 1826. It was never intended to be taken ultra-literally, but rather it is stating that the food that one eats has a bearing on one's state of mind and health. The actual phrase did not emerge in English until the 1920s when the nutritionist by the name of Victor Linlar strongly advocated that the food you eat is the key that controls your health. In 1942, Linlar published the book entitled, You Are What You Eat, subtitle, How to Win and Keep Health with Diet. The phrase was used in his radio talk shows in the late 1930s and no doubt reached a large audience. In our generation, this has been repopularized in 2006 when Dr. Gillian McKeith printed out his book that became a national bestseller with over 2 million copies sold. And the title of that book is, again, You Are What You Eat, subtitle, The Plan That Will Change Your Life. This book has had a huge impact on how people think of food and nutrition. You Are What You Eat features a real-life diet makeover and different case studies, easy-to-use lists and charts, and has beautiful photographs. And by encouraging you to eat a more nutrition-dense, flavorful, whole foods, You Are What You Eat will teach you how to stay healthy and satisfied. You Are What You Eat is a clear, no-nonsense, nutritional guide to a healthier life. Well, isn't that great? 
Who cares about that? You know, in some regard we do because we want to have a healthy body, right? But in some regards, our culture has taken you are what you eat to a whole new level where now you can even follow your favorite celebrity, whether it be Dwayne, The Rock Johnson, LeBron James or Tom Brady, who promote special diets and smoothies to, that keeps them in tip-top shape. And if you eat like they eat, of course, you'll look like them and play like them. Well, I'm all for eating healthy and I'm all for exercise. I, I try to participate in a, a, an own regimen of trying to eat a, a decent diet and, and a little bit of working out. I know that it doesn't always show, but I'm working on it. All right. But the idea is, is that too many people in our world are putting too much of a focus on their physical health. Now, I'm not against, again, placing an uh, emphasis on that. The Bible, in a general way, says to take care of the temple of God. That's a generality, okay? But the idea here is what I'm not okay with is if that's all that your life is about. What I'm not okay with is making your physical health more important than your spiritual health. What I'm not okay with is focusing more on the body then you focus on the heart. And if you were to gather the time you and I spend thinking about food and preparing food and eating food and talking about food, and you compare that to our spiritual intake of the word of God, I think some of us would be embarrassed if you were to see on a given day how much time is spent on one versus the other. And so in this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus is pretty much saying, you are what you eat. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is challenging his listeners to eat the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus says in this passage, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is not encouraging you to be a cannibal. Jesus is speaking metaphorically about believing in his atoning sacrifice as the only spiritual food and drink that can cleanse you from the toxins of sin and bring you into a place of spiritual health. Only Jesus can remove the free radicals of sin in your life. Only Jesus can cure you of the cancer of sin. Only Jesus can promote true spiritual health and well-being. And so don't get sucked into the idols of our culture. If you are feasting on the things of the world, you are avoiding the spiritual food and the teachings of Christ, which alone can make you healthy. But if you are feasting on Christ and you're partaking of his body and you're drinking of his blood, as this passage talks about, you can find true health and true satisfaction and eternal life. You can be saved. You can be sanctified. You will, in some regard, become what you eat. This morning, as we look at these verses, I want to give you three headings to help you understand what Jesus means when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. There in your bulletin, there's an outline with these three headings and a few blanks if you want to follow along. And the first point is this. Let's look at the preaching of Christ. The preaching of Christ as seen in verse 51, Jesus now continuing again in this sermon, I am the bread of life, started it back in verse 22 and continues pretty much to the end of the chapter. He says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As is the custom of Jesus. And as he's at 
And as, as he's been doing uh, through this chapter, Jesus uses physical illustrations to teach spiritual lessons. This is why Jesus taught in parables. This is how Jesus connected with the common man. This is how Jesus explained the simplest and most universal terms possible and what that means as it pertains to spiritual life. And in this passage, there's a lot about eating, and Jesus expects us to connect the physical act of eating with the spiritual aspect of salvation and growth. In fact, in this Bread of Life sermon, the word eat or the word feeds is given 12 times. There's no essential difference between the word eating and the word feeding. They both are giving this idea of eating and consuming and digesting a meal. Basically, Jesus is associating the physical act of eating with the spiritual concept of believing in Christ and growing in him. And this is common, not just with Jesus, it's really throughout the whole Bible. In fact, let me just quickly show you five different connections between physically eating food and spiritual health and growth. Here's the first concept I want you to get. Your first blank, eating is a necessary act if I'm going to derive any advantage from the bread. Eating, it's a necessary act. If you're going to just look at the food on the table, you're never going to get the nutrients into your body. You know, you could look at the bread sitting on the table and you could say, the bread is beautiful. The bread smells delicious. The bread is warm to touch. It's crunchy. I can tell it because when I pick it up, I I just love the, the way it feels. I love the way it smells. But if you're not going to eat the bread, you're not going to really be able to move into the nutrients that you need in order to change your state of health to be more healthy. But the same way this happens spiritually is people look at Christ and they say, he's so beautiful and they're familiar with the things of God and they could sing amazing grace and they could quote John three sixteen, and they love the culture of church and it makes them feel like they belong to a club and they have special social interaction and they love observing Christ and they're even observe, they're inspired by his miracles and they're amazed with his works and they're challenged by his words but they won't have him. This is the problem of our culture. So many in America claim to be Christians and they love everything that's associated with Christianity except Christ. Because if they really partake of the Christ of the Christian faith, it will radically change their life. You see, you can't play church with Jesus. You can't talk the talk if you're not also walking the walk. And the idea is, is that you need Christ. You need him this morning. You don't need to just know about him. You need to eat his body this morning. You need to believe in him with all of your heart and all of your soul. And the only way that you can ever grow in him is it is necessary for you to eat this gospel message. It's, it's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23. You're familiar with this cross-reference, like newborn infants long for the pure milk, uh, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We'll be reminded that just like a newborn baby craves milk, desires nutrients in order to grow and mature like a baby should. And if you have a baby around the house, they cry for it. They tell you by crying. That's how they communicate. They can't speak words, but they can cry a blood curling cry in the middle of the night that lets you know they're ready to eat. And I think the, the, the thing that we should take from that is, are we like that? Could you describe your life as like, you gotta have more of Christ 
You gotta have him right now. You just, you gotta open your Bible and you gotta read it and you gotta come to him in prayer. I'm afraid that many of us leave Christ on the table and we're okay with, with other things that uh, catch our attention and we're no longer feasting on Christ himself. It's necessary for us to eat the true bread of heaven. A second connection I want to make to you is this. Eating is preceded by hunger, but those who are full are not hungry. Eating is preceded by hunger, but many people are full and so they're not hungry. I was sharing with somebody just a little bit earlier about my past uh, job being a physician's assistant and working in open heart surgery. And not only did I have the privilege of doing part of the surgery, uh, but I had the privilege of making rounds on the floor after the surgery to assess the health and the ready uh, state of each patient before you know they would go home a week or so after surgery. Typically, the first day after surgery, you're just trying to make sure it's about life and death, that their blood pressure's okay, there's no leaks from the surgery, there's some chest tubes in there, and they're pretty much bedridden, and you're just kind of getting them through, getting extubated out of the intensive care unit and onto a regular floor. Day two, you come in, check it out, they're doing good, you take out their chest tubes, you get them out of bed, you get them walking around, and you just kind of, you know, you, you got to kind of get back into the normal swing of things. And one of the questions we'd always ask is, how are you feeling and are you hungry? Because there's a whole lot of indication given in the health of a person, if they were to say, oh, I'm not hungry, I couldn't eat anything, I feel awful, then you kind of, you know, you wouldn't say this to them, but you kind of, as a practitioner, you're thinking, oh, that's not good. You know, something's not right here. They should be recovering. But if they come out of the, uh, if they come out of the surgery and this couple of days later and they're like, man, I'm hungry as a horse, you know, and they're eating all this food and you can kind of sit there as a, as a physician's assistant or as a doctor or nurse and just be like, Hey, that's a good sign. That's a sign of health that shows that you're getting better. You're going to get out of here soon because your, your body is recovering. And so in the same way, the idea when it comes to Christ is we could ask the question, are you hungry? Hungry is almost always a sure sign that you are growing in a good spiritual, healthy way. And what's happening is some of us are so full of the things of the world that we're not hungry. We're just not. And the way I know that sometimes we're not hungry is we're not spending time eating. We're fasting from the Bible. We come in here to sing and worship with our hands in our pockets and our face looking to the floor. And I don't know what's going on, you know, in anybody's heart. I'm not saying you all have to lift your hands to heaven like I like to do from time to time. But what I am saying is when you come in and we sing these great hymns, are these great songs of the faith about how Christ died and was raised from the dead for your soul? Does that feed you? Are you feasting on that? Or are you starting to be distracted about your week and what are you going to do for lunch and what time do the Rams play and are the Dodgers going to take the World Series this year? I mean, we all get distracted, but we got to tune that out and make sure we're feasting from the word of God. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah. You see that reference listed there with point number two, Isaiah 55. This is a great challenge, encouragement to us, especially if you're not hungry. Maybe this could be your prayer today. Isaiah says this. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You know what he's saying? Come and eat. Come. Church, come this morning and consume the glory of God. Come. Matters not where you come from. You don't have to buy 
into the faith. You have to sacrifice your life, your desires, and your sin in order to come and come to Christ where you can be fed with this kind of food and delight yourselves once and for all in the glories of Christ. You'll never find satisfaction outside of Jesus. And so are you coming this way to God? Are you hungry for more of God? Are you thirsting for him? Let's look at another connection between eating and spiritual growth. Eating demands not only the act of tasting, but the act of ingesting. It is true that saliva secreted in the mouth begins to break down the food particles that you are chewing on. It is true that you are able to taste the food and there are some benefits of having a little bit of a satisfied feeling just by the taste of any particular food that you desire. But there is no absorption taking place in the mouth or in the esophagus. It starts in the stomach and it's mainly done in the small intestines, which means you can't just taste the food and spit it out and benefit from it. In order to gain the nutrients that your body craves, you must ingest the food, which means that you chew it and swallow it, and it goes down into more of your digestive organs so that you can absorb the nutrients therein. And there's a passage in Hebrews 6, which we read a couple of weeks ago, that warned us, if you're only tasting but not ingesting, then you're not inside the bounds of salvation. In fact, in Hebrews 6, 4, the author writes, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. You know that passage is saying? You could be a so-called Christian and you think that you've tasted of God because you can recite again a couple of Christian sayings and a verse here or there or a song here or there, but you know him not. And the reason you don't know him is all you've done is taste in a superficial way. And God wants you to go deep. God wants you to come all the way in to be radically transformed by him. And your whole life is now consumed with the glory of God. Your whole life is no longer consumed by your hobbies. It's no longer consumed by your interest of what others think about you. It's not about making money. It's not about alcohol. It's not about sensual pleasures being fulfilled. It's about the glory of God. That's why we live. That's why we're here. And so the Bible's telling us, eat, eat of the flesh of Christ. Drink of the flesh of Christ. Is Jesus your everything? Are you believing in all of God's word? Are you trusting in Christ's work alone on the cross? Are you submitting to all of his ways? Another connection between eating and spiritual growth would be this. Eating implies the food that is consumed becomes part of who you are. That was our opening illustration, right? Poor diet, we understand, leads to poor health. Or to say it a more picturesque way, if you have a diet that is high in fatty foods, it's more likely that you'll gain weight. Now, I know you could do the Atkins diet in different ways. You could spin it and say, Adam, if I got ketoacidosis going on, I'll actually lose weight even though I eat high fatty food. I know you're out there somewhere, but I'm just saying in general, okay, in general, the idea is if you're eating an unhealthy diet and consuming more calories than you ought, then you're going to be gaining weight. So you're going to start looking like what you're eating. You eat a large amount of food, you'll look a little bit larger. If you eat smaller amounts of food, hopefully more healthy food like carrots and celery, they look kind of like a bean pole. So if you just eat carrots and celery, maybe you'll look a little bit more like a bean pole. Who knows, right? But the idea is if you're eating unhealthy, unhealthy, 
looks possibly. I mean, we understand there's metabolic things going on and all that, but I'm just talking in generalities here. You are, in a general way, what you eat. And in the Bible, we use this both negatively and positively as we see it in scripture. For example, here's a negative assessment of eating something and it's a negative thing. Proverbs 20 verse 17 says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. And so what he's saying is if you're eating sin and you're eating deceit and you're eating the things of this world, at first it seems sweet to you. And you're like, Ooh, that's pretty good. But then all of a sudden it turns like gravel in your mouth, which means there's no nutrients. It's really hard. You can't swallow it. And all you could really do is spit it out. At first, some sin seems sweet. And then it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. Just ask Harvey Weinstein. What a horrible week. And I would pray for his soul. I mean, my heart goes out to this man who has sinned in horrible ways and all of this has come out this week to show our culture how you can't hide your sin. Be sure your sin will, what? Find you out. So I'm not here to beat up on Harvey. I'm here to pray for a man like Harvey, that you and I could be like that, that you and I are like that in so many ways, that we need God to cleanse us and to remind us that it's not about sin. It turns to gravel, so don't consume sin. Instead, a positive way to say it would be the Jeremiah 15, 16 reference that you see there, where Jeremiah says this, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. This is a time of Old Testament history where some of the original autographs were were, uh, not located. They were lost. He finds them and he talks about eating the word of God. Another passage in Ezekiel talking about literally consuming the scroll. And it's, it's amazing to think about that. But here's the analogy again between eating and spiritual health. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became a joy to me. When we're eating the word of God and we're consuming the things of Christ, it doesn't leave gravel in our mouth and a bitter taste. You will never spend an hour of study in this book and somehow get up and be like, I can't believe that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever read. Now you'll spend an hour in this book. You'll spend five minutes in this book and you'll leave like, wow, yeah, I needed that today. That's sweet in my mouth and sweet in my stomach. That's the nutrients that I need so that I can live a life for God, so that I can be filled with him. Here's the truth. Garbage in, garbage out. Grace in, grace out. And so as you think about what you're consuming, you are what you eat. I hope that you're consuming grace and it's evident and how you're living and how you're talking, it's kind of like that verse where Christ says it's out of an overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. What you're putting in is what's going to be coming out. One last connection to make here about this idea of eating, because this is, again, remember in, in this uh, text like 12 times, eating, eating, eating. Uh, the last concept I want to give is this. Eating is an intensely personal act, something no one else can do for you. You've heard the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. That's what you're saying here. Eating's a person, only you can eat for you. Nobody else can eat for you. Only you can eat. And as you eat, you obtain those nutrients as you swallow and digest that food. And, and you can't make a person believe in Christ. 
You can't make a person become a Christian. Just because your kids grow up in a Christian home is not a guarantee that they will be saved. Just because your kids are homeschooled doesn't mean they'll be saved. Just because your kid goes to a Christian school doesn't mean they'll be saved. Just because your kid goes to the Christian club at the public school doesn't mean your kid's going to be saved. Just because you're a great mom and dad who opens the Bible to your kids every night is no guarantee that your work will result in your kid's salvation. It's an act of God. They got to eat for themselves. It's the sovereign grace of God to open our children's eyes to the scripture. And the same is true with your neighbor and with your coworker and with your grandparents and whoever it is that you're burdened about to come to Christ. And so what we can do is pray for them and we can bring the food to them and we can just pray that God would give them a hunger, that God would allow them to see the beauty of eating of the person of Christ. This word, this uh, verse given here is Psalm 49, seven says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So not only can you not eat for your kids, but you can't even die for your kids. Uh, You can't be baptized for another person. You, You can't let somehow your good efforts be applied to the account of another. Only Jesus's righteousness can appropriately be applied to anybody's account. And while it is all of God's sovereign grace to change a heart and transform a life, Jesus does say here in this verse, verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You get the idea that he's offering it to anyone, anyone who would come. Jesus is a a public figure and a public ministry. There's nothing hidden here. This is not a cult. This is not being done behind closed doors. He comes and says, let anybody come. Let anybody come and eat of this bread. That could be you today, sir. That could be you, ma'am. That could be you, college student. That could be you, teenager. That could be you, child. You could be in this service today, and I'm inviting you, come and eat and drink of the body and blood of Christ. Remember, eating is necessary. If you're going to receive the nutrients from the bread, eating is preceded by hunger. Eating demands not only the act of tasting, but the act of ingesting. Eating implies the food you eat becomes part of who you are. And eating is an intensely personal act. Second heading I want to give to you this morning is this, the perplexity of the Jews. They're kind of confused about what Jesus is saying, and understandably so. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Let me say a few things about this verse. Number one, unbelief never understands the mysteries of salvation. Jesus is speaking to these unbelieving Jews and they're not able to comprehend what it is he's saying. A lost individual cannot understand the things of God because they are not spiritually capable of understanding. It's what the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. So it's almost like the Pharisees are like, what's this guy talking about? You can't eat his body and drink his blood. What what does he know? They're, they're, they're not spiritually discerned. That verse says he's not able, the natural man's not able to understand because they are not spiritually discerned. And so not only is the natural man not able to understand anything apart from what the word of God says, he must be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. He's not going to understand the things. A natural man cannot understand creation. They just can't. You can talk to somebody till you're blue in the face about the miraculous work of God to create the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days, 
all for his glory and for our good. And you could talk to somebody else who's going to quote scientific fact after fact, which aren't really facts, right? And you're just going to argue forever. They'll never get there, ever. Doesn't matter how much evidence you give them, they'll never get there apart from the sovereign act of God opening their minds to help them understand creation. A natural man cannot understand the incarnation. How in the world can God become a man? How does that happen? How in the world can somebody say, I'm fully God and fully man? The natural man will never understand the incarnation. The natural man cannot understand the resurrection. They'll explain away the resurrection of Christ any possible way because the resurrection can happen. It's supernatural. So the natural man will never understand that. They will never go with that. A natural man cannot discern the truth between uh, the difference between what's truly right and wrong because he's acting out of his own moral guide. And his moral guide is skewed. And so he'll never agree with what the Bible says about what is right and wrong when it comes to sexuality. He'll never agree. Well, to me, as long as it's real love and it's two consenting adults, it's okay. The Bible doesn't say that. So the idea is a natural man will never understand. And this, this is true throughout history. It's true throughout this gospel. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he's, he's a ruler of the Jews and he, he respects Christ. And he says, we know you're a great teacher. No one can do these things you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. And Nicodemus is confused. He says, well, how can a man go back into his mother's womb? Why did he answer like that? Because he's an unbeliever at that point. Now, we understand later Nicodemus comes to Christ and even comes alongside Joseph of Arimathea to help protect and uh, care for the body of Christ. So we see his conversion uh, throughout the gospel. But the idea is he can understand it's the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus is talking about living water. She thinks he's talking about water from the well. She says, I'll have some of this water, please, because I'm tired of drawing it up from the well. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. So here in this context, these people are, Jesus is talking about spiritual bread. They think he's talking about his own body. They're completely confused. And what we see also in verse 52, your next blank says this, unbelief always is always divided against itself. It's always divided against itself. Then these Jews disputed with who? Among themselves. You know what? Sometimes we tend to think that we're just disputing with Christ, but all unbelievers are somehow unified, but they're not. This word disputed could be translated argued. It means to engage in a heated dispute without the use of weapons. It means to fight. It means to quarrel. And what's happening here is not only are these Jews not believing in Jesus and what he's saying about being the true bread, they're arguing amongst themselves and they're fighting over what they think he may or may not be saying. And we see in other places of the gospel of John as well, the Pharisees are arguing over whether or not Jesus was from God. In John 9, 16, he talks about how he's greater than the Sabbath. And that verse ends by saying, and there was a division among them. Same thing in John 10, 17 through 19, when he He's talking about how Jesus is from his father, who is God. And there was a certain division, John 10, 19, among the Jews because they're fighting again. It's kind of like what Jesus says in Mark three twenty five: If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. All I'm trying to say is this. The Jews are confused because they cannot understand the mystery of salvation. The Jews are also arguing because of their unbelief. And so unbelievers don't just argue against Christ or the Christian church in a unified way in their own category of unbelief. They're always fighting and bickering each other as well. You want me to prove it to you? In this country, there are plenty of unbelieving Democrats. 
and in this country, there are plenty of unbelieving Republicans and they fight all the time. And it has nothing to do with the gospel of grace. People fight all the time, right? They fight about everything. They fight about politics and they fight about science and they fight about philosophy and they fight about the environment and they fight about the economy. That's what unbelievers do. They fight because they're not unified under the only truth that is true, the word of God. A third observation I want to give you here on verse 52 is this. Unbelief leads to the most ridiculous conclusions. They're asking, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Let me give you three. This isn't in your notes, but you can just kind of listen if you want. Three conclusions that come out of this verse that are ridiculous. Number one, cannibalism. Cannibalism. So maybe, maybe somebody would think he's actually teaching that. Is he really saying that? No, he's not saying that. The Bible couldn't be more clear that cannibalism is not really uh, something that's encouraged in the Christian faith. You could take that in principle from Leviticus seventeen fourteen. for the life of every creature is its blood, its life Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. You could take a principle like that and just say, you know what? The Bible's not so pro cannibalism. All right. There's also a second ridiculous conclusion from this verse would be transubstantiation. This is the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that the practice of the Eucharist is actually the body and blood of Christ literally present in the bread and the wine of the Mass. Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott writes, quote, the body and the blood of Christ together with his soul and his divinity and therefore the whole of Christ are truly present in the Eucharist, close quote. Well, not only do the Roman Catholics teach that the bread And the wine become the body and blood of Christ, but they teach that by participating in the mass, there's a special work, a special sacrament being done that infuses grace to your account that you can somehow become a believer. So they would teach that taking the mass or the Eucharist is partly part of your salvation. Well, this isn't what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is not speaking about literally eating his body and his blood. He's not using this language in an ultra-literal sense, but as, rather in a metaphorical sense. Third, some people think here Jesus is instituting communion. They would say, oh, yeah, I see, I see the... I see it kind of looks like a communion language, right? So some Christians believe that John 6 is where Christ first taught communion. I disagree with that for a few reasons. First, the word flesh that is seen in this passage is the word sarks, whereas the word uh, for the, the word soma is the word for body, which is used in all of the communion passages. So here he's talking about his flesh, which is the word sarks. All the communion passages and all the gospels in 1 Corinthians, when it says Christ's body, uses a different word. That's my first reason. A second reason why I don't think he's talking about communion right now is that he is uh, talking to a bunch of unbelievers. He's confronting a bunch of unbelievers. He's not, he's not saying, let's sit down and do this like he does on the night of the Lord's Supper where he really clearly displayed what was going on. He's in the midst of a bunch of unbelievers. He's not talking about communion. The third reason I don't think he's talking about communion is simply this. Eating and drinking of his body and blood is necessary for salvation. Taking communion is not. Taking communion is a memorial. It's just a reminder. Should we do it? Absolutely. But you're not saved by taking communion. You're being obedient and worshipful, but you're remembering what Christ has done. It's not the process of taking communion that saves you. 
In contrast to that, in this text, he's saying, no, you must eat and you must drink or you're not saved. So that's why I don't think he's talking about communion here. I think he's talking about something else. I think he's talking about salvation. I think he's talking about salvation. And we see that as we move to this next appointment here, next point here, number three, the point of the sermon. Verses 53 through 59, the point of the sermon, the first point says this, we're talking here about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Jesus, verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's, it's, it's almost as if it wasn't enough to talk about his body. Now he's got to talk about his blood because that's becoming grotesque to the Jewish mindset saying, oh, there's a very stern Old Testament passage that I just read out of Leviticus that says you should never drink the blood. And now all of a sudden Jesus is saying, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what I'm saying to you is he's not being ultra literal. It's a metaphorical language talking about his sacrifice, his body and his blood must be shed in order for salvation to take place. He's not being cannibalistic, cannibalistic, right? He's, he's not talking about that. He's talking rather about the fact that his body must be sacrificed for us. He is saying that whoever repents and believes in Christ's totally sufficient sacrifice will be saved. He's saying that the only condition by which any person can be saved is that Christ must die in that person's place and that person must have his sins replaced by the body and the blood of Christ. There is no life in you. And so you cannot be saved except for the sacrifice of Christ. You must then feed on his flesh and drink his blood. This is not a reference to Christian vampires, but rather to the vicarious nature of the atoning work of Christ. He's saying true food and true drink is Christ's body and his blood. Every other way is false. Every other food or drink is only temporary. Every other sacrifice is in vain, except the sacrifice of Christ. What Jesus is talking about, again, is what theologians call the substitutionary atonement, which means that Jesus Christ died in the place of any sinner who would ever repent and believe. It means that God's wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross so that those who repent and believe in Christ's life, death, and resurrection would be saved. We've all had substitute teachers in school. It means that another teacher comes and does another person's job. We all have heard about a sports team substituting in a player. That means that this new player comes in and takes your spot. And in an infinitely greater way, that's what Christ did. He took your spot. He took over your job. You failed to live a righteous life. So Christ lived a perfectly righteous life in your place. And therefore, Christ took your punishment and you receive his reward. That's what the substitutionary atonement's all about. And it's necessary because we're reminded in Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And then we see in Hebrews 9, how it continues to talk about the superiority of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice versus all the Old Testament animal sacrifices. 
Because the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, not into the, the, uh, the synagogues and the altar made by hands, but he goes into heaven to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's what he did after the cross. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He entered into the holy place once for all. The veil was rent from top to bottom to say it's not about temples it's about Christ. It's not about the lambs of, of uh, physical animals, but Christ is the lamb, right? So he offered himself and entered into heaven and became the atoning sacrifice that pleased God. He, he appeased the wrath of God against any sinner if that person would come and believe. Puritan Thomas Brooks says it this way, quote, our sins, our Our sins are debts that none can pay but Christ. It is not our tears, but his blood. It is not our sighs, but his sufferings that can testify for our sins. Christ must pay all or we are prisoners forever. Without the substitutionary atonement of Christ, there's no hope for you. His body, his blood must be broken and poured out on your behalf. And this leads us to a second comment I want to make here about the atonement. Let's look at the extent of the atonement of Christ. Again, from these same three verses, 53 through 55, the extent of the atonement of Christ. Here's the question, for whom did Christ die? Did Jesus die for the whole world collectively or for the elect specifically? Did Jesus die for every individual in the world or for those in the world who would repent and believe? Did Jesus die for those who are in hell? Or did he die only for those who are in heaven? I think the best way to answer this somewhat controversial question is by asking another question. And the question I like to ask is this, did the atonement of Christ actually accomplish something? When he died on the cross, was he making his blood and his body potential for anybody who would come? Or does he have in his heart and his mind an exact execution of the conversion of the souls of those that he came to save? My answer is that Jesus died for the elect. His atonement is limited to individuals who will repent and believe. And while Jesus' death could be considered sufficient for the sins of all, it's only efficacious for the elect. And the reason I believe that is because of what we read in these three texts. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me, Jesus says, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So from Jesus' own words, he says, look, I lay down my life for the sheep. I did not die for the world at large. I died specifically for my sheep. He doesn't say he died. The Bible does say God loves the world, but it does not say Christ never says that his death is specifically to be applied in the life of every individual in the world. He says, rather, I lay down my life for the sheep or turn to John 17, verse nine in Jesus's high priestly prayer. We read this. Jesus is praying now. Think about this. This is Jesus, who is God the Son, praying to God the Father. 
And he says to him this, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Couldn't be more clear. It's like, I am not praying for the world because the world has not been given to me, but for those who you gave me, I will by no means cast them out. And so I'm praying for those that you gave me that they would be saved. Or you might have in your head another verse that comes to play. If you want to turn to 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, people would say, well, what about this one, Adam? And I understand this isn't a, a proper adequate, thorough treatment of limited atonement versus another view. So forgive me for just giving you a few thoughts and not maybe answering all your questions. But in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the author, the apostle John writes this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Let me just pause there. He's the propitiation for whose sins? For our sins. Who is the hour? The hours would be those who are believers. He's writing mainly to believers. And he's saying, look, Jesus, we're not supposed to sin anymore. But if we do, there's Jesus. And he's our advocate. And he died and he's the advocate for our sins. But then he does go on and say, hey, it's not just for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, my understanding about this verse would be this. Christ is the propitiation for our sins and for anyone in the world who would repent and believe. And the only way that you can repent and believe is if God drags you out of your dead condition of sin and makes you alive together with Christ. I don't think that he's saying here in 1 John 2 that every individual in the whole world is on his heart and mind, but rather any individual in the whole world who would repent and believe. Is the atonement of Christ limited? Of course it's limited to those who repent and believe. In no way do those who suffer in hell benefit from the blood or the body of Christ. Let me move on. We've talked a little bit about substitutionary atonement. We've talked a little bit about the extent of the atonement. Let me move into something that's less theoretical and maybe more practical in some ways, and that's this, the effect of the atonement. The effect of the atonement, verses 56 and 57, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. Let me start with verse 57. He's saying, look, just as the father abides in me and I abide in the father and we have this intra-Trinitarian union from eternity past, the father abides in Christ and Christ abides in the father. That's amazing. And he's saying in verse 56, just in that same way, that's what you guys, I abide in you and you abide in me. If you're a Christian, the atonement's extent for your personhood is radical transformation. It changes everything about you, changes your nature, changes your desires, changes your pleasures, changes how you spend your time, changes how you spend your money, changes how you treat your wife, changes how you raise your kids, changes what you view on the TV. Everything changes because the effect of the atonement is about abiding. That's what it's about. You get saved. Christ abides in you. Listen to how John says it a little bit later in John 15, 5. I am the vine, Christ speaking. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me 
and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This word abides means to remain. It means to stay. The English word abide means to act in accordance with a rule or decision. Here's what he's saying. Abiding is staying true to the faith. Abiding is saying, I made a decision for Christ only because of his sovereign grace in my life. And therefore my life is going to be true to all that he's done and all that he says, because I'm abiding in him. I'm not doing this on my own. I'm tapped into him. He's the vine. I'm just a branch. And so I'm remaining in him and I'm staying in him and get this. The good news is he says he does the same for you. He says, I'm abiding in him, but guess what? He's abiding in me, which means he's being true to his word, to love you, to forgive you, to empower you, to help you see that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you're abiding in him and you're being true to your commitment as a Christian and your conviction as a Christian, and he's abiding in you to stay connected with you and to remain inside of you and to indwell you with the Holy Spirit, how can it go or anything go wrong? I mean, this is the beauty of this immense indwelling of the spirit of God inside the heart of a believer. And it all happens because of the body and the blood of Christ. It's Christ living in me. It's me living in him. It's the abiding that helps me walk close with Christ. It's the abiding that helps me say no to sin. It's the abiding that keeps me as a man of integrity, as a woman of integrity. That's what the atonement's about. When you think atonement, you should think sacrifice. Yes, you should also think abiding. He saved me. He died in my place. He's changed me. Don't think fire insurance. Think, and I'm radically different. And because I'm radically different, he's abiding in me. His body, his blood has all made this possible that I would be walking a walk of faith in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not abiding in Christ and your life is in shambles and you're living a life of sin and you're addicted to your sin, you might need to just do a double take here to see if you really understand the power of the atoning sacrifice of Christ to change you from the inside out. I'm not talking about a lot of Christian puppets. I'm talking about people who get up and say, Jesus, I love you. I want to give this day to you. I want to give my life to you. Here's my checkbook and here's my entertainment schedule and here's my family. It's all yours, God. Are you abiding in him in that way? A couple other points. The forever impact of the atonement. Verse 58, this doesn't just last for a day, but forever. There's a forever impact here. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is like the third or fourth time Jesus has made this clear. I'm not talking about the manna in the wilderness. I'm not talking about what Moses provided for Israel. No, no, we're under the new covenant. This is the, the, the spiritual bread of Christ. And when you eat of this, that's forever, like forever and ever. You know, here in America, we think that uh, something's old if it's like back around the time of the revolution. You know, here in California, we think it's old if it's 100 years old. You know, we, think, we think 500 years old is old if we think about the Reformation or 6,000 years old when we think about creation. Well, what about forever and ever and ever? Listen, don't waste your life. Don't waste the concept of eternity, which is impressed upon the heart of man. Don't resist it, but rather start thinking about making an investment, not just for the here and now, but for the future, for the idea that your soul will live forever, forever, either in heaven or in hell. So the atonement of Christ changes you forever. One last thought, the public proclamation of the atonement of Christ. Where is Jesus teaching this? 
Is this in a little getaway with his disciples somewhere in the corner of Israel? No. Look at, look at verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Guess what the synagogue was? The most public place in that city. We think about the doctrine of the atonement as Christians. We kind of push it down a little bit because it gets a little ugly and we tend to kind of minimize it a little bit. Ah, just try Jesus. We don't usually talk to people about his body and his blood and abiding and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, it is the time of year where you might want to talk about that. And when an unbeliever, it might interest them and you could get them in to a conversation. But my point is simply this. The proclamation of the atonement of Christ is a public proclamation on the news, in your interview, at work, at your school, with your neighbor, wherever you go. It's not like, oh, well, that's one of the harder doctrines to talk about. I don't kind of, kind of, you know, go light on the atonement. I'm going to be a, you know, Christian light atonement Christian. No, I mean, we should be talking about, look, it's about his life, his death, his resurrection, his body, his blood. And we ought to be shouting that from the mountaintops about the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you get ready to go out of here this morning, let me ask you three questions. Number one, are you hungry for, and are you truly eating the bread of Christ? I want to know this morning, whether or not you're hungry. Could you look me in the eye and say, Adam, I hunger for God. And it's demonstrated with your time and your day. And you're saying, I want to consume the body and bread of Christ. If that's not you this morning, let me encourage you to just to pray for it. There's times in my life where I'm like, I don't feel like it. We, we all know what that's like, but I pray for it. God, would you increase my hunger? God, would you increase my thirst? Lord, I feel like I'm full with the junk of the world. God, let me see that that's all a wreck and in shambles and will leave a bitter taste and be like gravel in my mouth. And say, God, I want to hunger for you. I want to eat well. Second question, what does communing with Christ on a daily basis look like in your life? What does that look like for you? We take communion once a month, but how do you commune with him Every moment of every day, are you thinking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in a spiritual metaphorical way that you're ingesting all that he is all of the time? You're not a, you're not a Christian nibbler. You're a Christian eater who's feasting on the word of God. Are you communing with him? Or another way to say it, this last question, how has the atonement of Christ enabled you to abide in him every day? How, how does that look? Are you abiding Are you true to your commitment? Are you remaining in him? Because you know what? He's remaining in you. He's committed to you. He will never let you go. He's abiding in you. If you're in Christ this morning, he's providing for you all that you need, all of your joy and all of your happiness. Think about the living vine again. The roots come up, the leaves make the food and it sends it out down the vine. And here you are, a little branch along your merry way being filled every day with the body and the blood of Christ. Thinking about that ought to daily cause you to want to live for him and to be careful what you're eating because you are what you eat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive deep again into John 6 and to the beautiful, clear, shocking language of consuming the body and drinking the blood of Christ. I pray that we would pause as we think about this passage 
and we would consider how it is that you would love us to send your son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And as we think about that love that you demonstrated, not just with your words, but with the action of Christ, that it would truly change us forever. I pray, God, that we would eat deeply of your word and of the body of Christ, and we would drink deeply of your grace and the blood of Christ, that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus would be something that we can't get away from, and we can't stop thinking about it, and that it would draw us in to a deeper walk and a more joyful attitude and a more thankful heart and a more evangelistic spirit that we could share with others the incredible news of Christ's sacrifice on the behalf of sinners so that we could be saved, sanctified, and satisfied forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.